It's history. The figures. The drama. The deep questions. If we dig deep in our history and our doctrine, and remember that we are not descended from fearful men. It's hardcore history. We almost decided to ditch the topic we're talking about today, earlier on in the process of creating this episode. Originally, I picked it because it's full of some of the great stories you can ever imagine. Some of the weirdest things, too. Bizarre stuff. And the backdrop for these events is majestic. But it's such a complicated story and a confusing story that it proved to be daunting to try to organize it. You wanted to tell these dramatic and bizarre and interesting stories, but you needed enough of the context to really set up the drama and set up the intrigue to give the events the full force that they deserve. And I was having a really hard time doing that. And I'm not the only one. One of the reasons this subject isn't well known, because it's got all the elements that would make you want to know about it and somebody else want to tell you about it, is because of the complexity. There aren't even good books on the subject to recommend. The best books out there read like textbooks, and there aren't even a lot of those. So I'm trying to figure out a novel way to tell you these stories and get you interested in this subject. And if we do a poor job of organizing it and leave you confused at the end, just realize that that puts you in really good company. And, well, that's part of the reason a lot of people don't know about this. But when I say this story has everything, I mean everything. This story is like a mafia soap opera is the best way to put it. I mean, you have... Body snatching, assassinations, poisonings, megalomania, bedroom politics, backstabbing, and double-double crossing. It's one of the fantastic time periods in history, and it didn't last very long. 30, 40 years it was over. But I'm talking about the period after Alexander the Great died unexpectedly. That is the dramatic era that set up a scramble for his empire because he died without a proper heir. That is, well, it's like the most interesting pickup sticks game you ever saw. A game of musical chairs where all his generals and everyone who had any of his blood in their veins were vying for their little piece of the pie. And some of these guys didn't want a little piece of the pie. Some of them wanted the whole pie. And I started thinking of all these wild questions. Because you think about what went on in 323 when Alexander the Great died and everybody started scrambling for their piece of his pie. And you say, well, what if Napoleon had been a successful conqueror like Alexander the Great? I mean, if he had had to settle down for a while and absorb his empire, enjoy the fruits of his conquest as opposed to being defeated at the end. Same thing for Adolf Hitler. What if he'd been victorious and you had this giant... Nazi superstate 
And then all of a sudden, without ever making any preparations for any succession or anything like that, Adolf Hitler just died. Who does the empire go to? How do you work that out? Well, in 323, Alexander the Great was doing fine, at least for the early part of the year. He was 32 years old, the greatest conqueror the world had ever seen. Sure, he had just gotten a little bit of a setback in India. He wasn't actually defeated, but his troops didn't want to go any farther. That's what 10 or 15 years of constant warfare will do to them. And so Alexander, his um, amazing need to conquer everything he could find, not at all satisfied, reluctantly turned back, went back to Babylon, and for the first time since he started, pretty much since the first time he became the king in Macedonia, he sat down and had a little time to enjoy the fruits of his victory. Of course, what did he do? He started planning more conquests. That's what you do when you have an unsatisfiable need to conquer everything. The sources say that he was thinking about going west now because most of Alexander's conquests had been in the east. You start in Greece and you move east, and that's what he did. Now he was thinking about the west, though. Maybe North Africa. Maybe Italy. Wouldn't that have changed history if Alexander conquered Carthage in 320 B.C. or Rome in 318 B.C.? And he was certainly capable of doing it, 32 years old, just reaching the height of his powers, you would think. And then all of a sudden, he dies. Think of him as the brain and this whole empire as the body, empire of 100 million people, bigger than the United States by quite a bit. And this area for the first time in human history had been united under the will of a single individual. If Alexander wanted to conquer Carthage, that was going to be the goal of all of the people in that empire. The artisans, the craftsmen, the farmers, the average people, the bureaucracy, the soldiers, everyone was going to do whatever Alexander wanted them to. He was the brain for this giant body. And all of a sudden, in 323 BC, after 12 days of a mysterious illness, the brain is gone. What happens to the body? Well, when the people around Alexander, the powerful generals and marshals who were formidable individuals in their own right, when they realized that it was actually possible this guy was going to die, took a few days of being seriously ill before that even entered in their, their heads, people started to wonder. Because not only was there a giant empire at stake, but there was a ton of money that was the byproduct of all these conquests, and who was going to get all this stuff? Like I said, think of Napoleon or Hitler dying without any sort of heirs, and you just sit there for a minute and go, well, who, what do we do now? Is this mine or yours? And I always try to imagine what the room was like when Alexander was dying, and all these people were nervous around him, and every day were more nervous as he didn't get better. And finally, the sources, which are far from unbiased. Everybody had a huge vested interest in representing these events from different viewpoints after Alexander died, so take it all with a grain of salt. But these people, the marshals, the potential successors to Alexander, came to him and said, who do you leave the empire to? And the sources say, he said, to the strongest. He might have said to the stronger. It might have been to the best. I've heard that translation. 
Some historians think he actually left it to one of his generals and that the name of that general was very similar to the archaic Greek that would have said to the strongest as well. So maybe he was misheard. But in any case, that was kind of keeping with Alexander's personality. It's one of the things that makes him so compelling and interesting. He thought he was descended from Achilles on his mother's side and Heracles on his father's side, slept with a copy of the Iliad under his pillow, supposedly. He was the kind of guy that might have said, hey, I'm leaving it to whoever can keep it and hold it. Supposedly, his last words were, I see a great contest after my death, or something to that effect. And of course, that's not that unbelievable a prediction when you consider that his last will and testament is to leave this empire to the stronger. And I've always thought that Alexander the Great should be compared to a great quarterback on a great football team. He was the star player. But when he died, you have to think all these people in the room were looking at his corpse going, who's going to play quarterback now? And then a second later, after looking around the room, probably thinking, maybe I could play quarterback. And that's where the fun really starts in this whole little era that well, a couple of eminent historians have called the funeral games, because that's how Alexander sort of phrased it, a funeral contest. I like to think of it as a chessboard, and this chessboard had been dominated by one giant piece, Alexander the Great, for quite a while. When he died, all of a sudden there was going to be a game to see who gets what Alexander had, and the only people that are allowed to play this game are the people who were either working for him as generals and marshals, or people who had his blood in their veins. And so many of the events that are so interesting to get into in this story, the reason I picked it in the first place, happen within this context. Alexander the Great conquers the known world and some of the unknown world. He dies unexpectedly. His marshals and generals fight it out, and family members get involved as well to try to figure out who gets what Alexander had, and after 30 or so years of warfare, finally there's a few of these generals left, and they found these dynasties, you know, one in the Macedonia, Greece area, another one in Asia, and another one in Egypt, that live on for a couple hundred years and are eventually taken over in wars, mostly, by the Romans. They provide the bridge from the old world to the Roman world, and this is the so-called Hellenistic period in history, where Greek ideas and culture and actual lots of Greeks uh, transmit themselves. Actually, begins a two-way transmission, I should say, from Asia to Europe and Europe to Asia. So Alexander, responsible for that, and it was during the Hellenistic period after his death that this came to full blossom, I guess you could say, fully bloomed. So that's the overview. The reality, though, was is when Alexander died, the events started heating up right away. Now, let's not pretend that everything had been hunky-dory before Alexander died. He had been very strange and unstable near the end of his life. A lot of historians think that his alcoholism had reached a tipping point. He was showing classic signs of megalomania and was definitely being corrupted by absolute power. The purges were happening much more often. He was killing a lot of the people who had helped him get to where he was because he was so afraid they were part of plans to overthrow him. He was 
probably believing that he was a god. That's what the sources talk about a lot, and that was upsetting the people who worked under him. And then, near the end of his life, his right-hand man, his best friend, some historians believe his lover, Hephaestion, who he had known since childhood, dies mysteriously, very much like Alexander died, by the way. And this sends Alexander kind of over the edge. And when Alexander dies, there's a lot of speculation, again, probably very biased speculation with ulterior motives, that he may have been assassinated. I've read, and I can't remember the historian who said it, but I'm going to mangle the quote, but that assassination was sort of like a Macedonian national pastime. It's part of what makes him fun. And I've always thought, by the way, of the Macedonians as like a giant mafia crime family. I don't mean to insult anyone who calls themselves descendants of the ancient Macedonians, but when you read their histories from this time period, they're so wonderfully decadent in terms of reading. Everybody's whacking everybody else, the intrigue, the double-crossing, and the wonderfully developed, powerful characters in the story just make it like you're reading a dime novel. Especially if the historian you're reading can bring it out right. And as I said, there are very few people who even try to talk about this period. They're scared off by the complexity. But they know that there's great stories. The first thing that happens when Alexander dies, for example, is that there is a rebellion amongst his own troops. His great Macedonian army starts fighting amongst itself over who is going to succeed him. Because Alexander didn't leave any proper heirs. The potential heirs were all way too young. Alexander had, for example, an illegitimate child named Heracles, just a baby. And he had a Bactrian princess named Roxanne, pregnant with, well, they didn't know what at the time. It turned out to be a boy that they named Alexander IV. Neither one of those children was someone who could succeed to the kingship. But Alexander also had a half-brother. Historians call him Philip Eridaeus. And the infantry of Alexander's army wanted Philip Eridaeus to be crowned king. The cavalry of the army, which was made up more of the aristocrats of the Macedonians, the infantry was more the rank-and-file people, the cavalry was going to go along with whatever these powerful generals wanted, and the powerful generals wanted a regency. What they meant by that was they were going to rule for Alexander's really young, you know, infant heirs or unborn heirs, if Roxanne should have a boy. The regents were going to watch over things until the children came of age. Well, Alexander's infantry were not fools. They grew up in the mafia soap opera culture of Macedonia, too. And they didn't trust these powerful, formidable generals to meekly hand over power to these children once they grew up. They knew a power grab when they saw one. And that's when the fighting broke out. And there was actual deaths and besieging of cities and all kinds of interesting fighting went on before a peace was brokered. Another one of these weird stories, and I think I'll throw these in whenever I can, that when the compromise was brokered between the infantry and the cavalry of Alexander's army, in order to give it this legitimacy that only Alexander seemed to possess, they trotted out Alexander's body and sort of had it at the proceedings. So he was watching over the proceedings. And Alexander's body actually plays an important part in this story. As a matter of fact, because he was the godhead, the fountainhead of legitimacy, everybody who's trying to succeed 
or grab a piece of his empire, tries to tie himself to Alexander one way or another. One of these generals, who was vying for his empire later, actually would tell his troops that Alexander was talking to him through his dreams, and he would transmit Alexander's orders to the troops. This isn't from me, this is from Alexander, here's what he told me last night. Forget what he told me last week in the dream, this is new. You could see how much, though, propaganda and trying to boondoggle the average Macedonian was coming into play in these funeral games. I mean, one of the great stories in this whole thing is that when Alexander dies, they mummify his body. And they don't mummify it the old-fashioned way like they did in Egypt with bandages and stuff. They were doing this with the latest Egyptian technology, which had gotten much better than that. Matter of fact, some of the sources say that he was encased in honey, which would act as a preservative and that he was put in a special sarcophagus, gold and stuff, but I think you could see him in it. And then at one point when things break down amongst these various marshals and generals and they start actually fighting with each other, taking troops from Alexander, splitting them up and then going at it, another one of these successors behind the backs of everyone else steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. Because having Alexander's body was attaching yourself more to the legitimacy. And then when one of the generals, a guy named Perdiccas, found out that the body had been stolen, he was kind of hoping to be the one that had the body, he ran down to Egypt and got into a fight with Ptolemy, the one who stole the body. And eventually, Perdiccas made a terrible mistake in a battle, and 2,000 Macedonians drowned in the river or were eaten by crocodiles. The Macedonians didn't like that, so they killed Perdiccas that night, their own general. And then the next morning, went to Ptolemy and said, well, we killed Perdiccas, you want to... You want to be the regent? Because Perdiccas had been the actual regent. That was the kind of backstabbing that was going on all the time. Like I said, it was like a mafia crime family. And there were some of the most wonderful characters from history if you were writing a Shakespearean drama. You'd want several of the people in this whole funeral game story in your play. So who were these new figures on the chessboard? Well... Most of them were Alexander's generals. And there was a wild cast of characters among them. My favorite is Antigonus One-Eye, or The One-Eyed, or Cyclops. He was called that for obvious reasons. Antigonus One-Eye was probably the general of Alexander's that came the closest to becoming the next Alexander. In all the wars he fought with all the other generals... He only lost one battle, but it was the one he died in at Ipsus in 301. Nevertheless, his kids ended up founding the Antigonid dynasty in Macedonia that would exist on and off until uh, the Romans took it over violently. And Antigonus was a big man eventually at the end of his life. I mean, in the last battle, he was an 81-year-old man, enormously fat, large, one-eyed, and a visionary leader. Very ambitious. He was one of the people that would vie for Alexander's throne. Another was a friend of his from childhood. Some of the historians, especially from the ancient times, seem to think that he may have even been Alexander's half-brother, one of Philip II's many illegitimate children, Ptolemy. Ptolemy is supposed to have been a student with Alexander of Aristotle. They were 
as close as close could be, Ptolemy was one of the few bodyguards that Alexander would allow close to him armed. A right-hand man. And Ptolemy was a fascinating character because he was the only one of the successor generals, and that's what they were called, the successors, the successors to Alexander. He was the only one not to have really fallen into the trap of trying to have it all. Because if there's one thing the post-Alexander period showed, it's that all of these formidable generals had one goal, and that was to not let anyone else become the next Alexander. And so one of the reasons that the period's so complex to explain is because there were no fixed sides. The alliances kept changing in dizzying arrays to make sure that everybody ganged up on whoever the lead dog seemed to be. For example, when Antigonus One-Eye made his play for empire later down the road, everyone else ganged up against him. And this would be repeated any time anyone seemed to show promise as the next Alexander. So try following that. It does make for wonderful backstabbing, though, because constantly sides that had just recently been friends would turn around and fight each other. Instead of a civil war, think about a six- or an eight-way war, and you have a better idea of what the 20 or so years after Alexander's death looked like. All these different generals with all their little pieces of Alexander's empire fighting one another. Sometimes to get it all, sometimes just to expand their little piece of the pie a little bit more. Ptolemy, by the way, was the one who stole Alexander's body. There was a tradition in Macedonia that the successor to the king is the one who buries the king. And so when Perdiccas, who was the regent after Alexander died, which instantly made him the lead dog, which instantly made him everybody's enemy, when Perdiccas was fighting all the other successors, or just about to in Asia Minor, Ptolemy snuck up behind him and took Alexander's corpse back to Egypt. Who's going to bury whose successor, I guess, is what that turned out to be. And Ptolemy, by the way, is also the guy who founded the famous library at Alexandria. The one that would hold the compiled wisdom of the ancient world before it was tragically destroyed generations later. Now, not all the pieces on this chessboard, this mafia, soap opera, musical chairs chessboard, were generals. A lot of the people on the chessboard were relatives of Alexander. And I've often thought of how unfortunate those people were. Because for most of their lives, it must have seemed a great boon to be related to the great Alexander. But once he died, they all became pawns. A perfect example is the weak-minded Philip Eridaeus. After Alexander dies, the infantry and the cavalry of his army start fighting each other, and the infantry demands that Philip Eridaeus be given the crown. But Philip Eridaeus was weak-minded, or feeble-minded, and giving him the crown still allowed the generals to be regents and run things, and they essentially neutralized Philip Eridaeus as any sort of a real power. But see, he still was a pawn that others could seize and use, and others did. Some of the biggest players in the post-Alexander chess game, the funeral games, are women. And one of the reasons why is because that's one way to grab the power attached to a pawn. The general can use the pawn to rule through them, but women were able to marry some of these pawns and then 
through them become powerful themselves. A perfect example is Philip II had a daughter. And this daughter also had a daughter, someone who's become known to history as Eurydice. Well, she married off Eurydice to Philip Eridaeus. And Eurydice was a really strong woman, actually trained as a warrior. You attach a strong personality like that to a feeble-minded king, even though he doesn't have much power in reality, he has all of the power that comes with being Alexander's brother and his appointed successor. And now he was married to someone who was going to try to take as much of that pawn's power as possible at the expense of the generals who thought that they were ruling through this guy. Another one of the women who dominates this story as a chess piece is Alexander's mother, Olympias, one of my favorite figures from history. First of all, she is a wonderful combination of different traits. She was, Al she was Alexander's father's third or fourth wife. She was not Macedonian. She was from Epirus to the west of Macedonia, considered barbarian even by Macedonian standards. She was supposed to be a witch. She was supposed to hold religious ceremonies with snakes. The movie Alexander the Great that Oliver Stone did, which I'm not a fan of, cast Angelina Jolie in that role. And I would not have cast her, but she turned out to be a pretty good representation, I thought, of Olympias. So if you want to mentally picture what Olympias was like, think of her. But Olympias was a spitfire. She was ruthless as well. She had some kind of sexiness going because she basically... Uh, captured the heart for a while of the most powerful firebrand of his day, Philip II. She tried to convince her son, Alexander, his whole life that he was divine and some kind of a god. And she and Philip eventually ended up hating each other, and she was considered dangerous by the most powerful man in the world, dangerous enough to exile. And she was completely devoted to her son, and the true level of her ruthlessness came out whenever she was trying to defend his interests. She may very well have been the one responsible for Philip II's assassination. If that's true, it's Olympias who's responsible for the fact we had an Alexander the Great at all. And she became passionately devoted to seeing Alexander's heirs on the throne after he died, in the same way she was passionately devoted to Alexander during his lifetime. But this put her at odds instantly with all these generals who wanted to use Alexander's heirs only as pawns. Only as ways to further their own legitimacy so they could be king. Well, Olympias was going to have none of that. And she played a major role in upsetting the apple cart. She was like the wild card in this whole mafia soap opera story. And she'd been playing that role for a while. For example, when Alexander was involved in his conquests, Olympias went and had Alexander's half-siblings, the one by a later wife that Philip took after Olympias, she, she had them killed, the wife and the children. There was a boy and a girl. That would have been dangerous to Alexander. They could have been set up as pretenders for the throne, and Olympias got them out of the way. But that showed you what kind of ruthlessness she could employ. Well, after he died, she employed every little bit of her abilities to push her interest on the chessboard. And when Cassander, another one of these successors, who was running Macedonia for a while, when he went off to Greece to fight, 
And Cassander was not a friend of Olympias. She didn't like Cassander. And uh, Philip Aridaeus and his wife Eurydice, his powerful warrior-trained wife, were left in Macedonia. They, they made a claim, I guess you could say, that they thought Cassander should be the regent, the one in control of Alexander's heirs. Well, this upset Olympia so much because she couldn't imagine having this enemy of hers in charge of her grandson, who she was hoping was going to be on the throne, that she got an army together in her homeland of Epirus and led it into Macedonia while Cassander was away. Imagine this scene, if you will. This woman leading this army of, you know, Macedonian warriors and tribal irregulars into the country that her son was king of. And to make it more dramatic and more interesting, Cassander was away, and Philip Aridaeus was weak-minded, but Philip Aridaeus' wife Eurydice was a powerful woman in her own right, and she put on her armor and got her weapons and raised her army and took it to the border and met Olympias' army at the border of Macedonia and Epirus. These two women, one of them dressed as a warrior and fully prepared to fight. As a matter of fact, her mother, who was a daughter of Philip II, just like Alexander was a son of Philip II, they were half-siblings. Her mother had supposedly killed an Illyrian tribal chief in single combat. So this Eurydice was prepared to fight. But once the army she was leading saw who she was prepared to fight, they laid down their weapons. In a scene reminiscent of when Napoleon came back from his first exile and was met by the French troops that were sent to stop him from marching on Paris, and he gave that impassioned speech, and they started crying and falling down on the ground and giving up their weapons and pledging to fight for the emperor. This was a similar scene, because the Macedonians that Eurydice was commanding saw that Olympias was on the other side, and she was Alexander the Great's mother, their national hero, many of whom may have actually fought for him. Not just that, but just to hedge her bets a little bit, Olympias had brought that last princess Alexander had had a relationship with, Roxanne, and her son, Alexander IV, with them. Eurydice never stood a chance. She was delivered up to Olympias, who quickly killed Philip Aridaeus, her husband's son by a previous marriage. And then the story goes, she had Eurydice locked in a dungeon and then sent her a rope, a sword, and a vial of poison and said, take your choice. And she hung herself, and the sources say she acted like a princess or a queen through the whole affair. But Olympias got a hold of Macedonia for a little while after this, before Cassander came back. And she was like a wicked queen when she was in control. A lot of people were executed. A lot of scores were settled. Anyone that had been on her bad side up until then got what she thought they had coming. And then Cassander came back with an army. Eventually, Olympias ends up besieged in this fortress with what's left of her forces by Cassander. And Cassander, who was already doing his best to get rid of Alexander's blood relatives, offered peace terms to Olympias, who was being starved out. And the peace terms included a deal that said that she would be allowed to live, which Cassander immediately reneged on once the siege was over. In typical Macedonian double-dealing, backstabbing fashion, he had Olympias tried and executed. There goes Alexander's mother, one of the great figures from history, exits the stage. Cassander then finds excuses to have Roxanne and Alexander IV liquidated, 
which sends a scramble later on for Alexander's one remaining son, who was named Heracles, and one of the old Macedonian generals got a hold of him and thought that was going to be his personal pawn to power, and Cassander managed to bribe him to kill Heracles as well. So eventually, Cassander is responsible for wiping out a large segment of Alexander's bloodline. But what that does is it allows the generals to stop pretending that they're trying to protect the empire for Alexander's heirs, which was never their intention. That's why that infantry cavalry war broke out right after Alexander died. The infantry knew that these generals eventually wanted power, and that's eventually what they were able to do. They were able to proclaim themselves kings outright after Alexander's bloodline had been wiped out. Now, that didn't stop them from fighting each other. Antigonus One-Eye was the last guy to really make the big attempt to be the next Alexander. And what ended up happening was the other generals allied against him, and he was defeated and killed at the Battle of Ipsus. And after that point, the generals still fought amongst themselves, but they declared themselves kings, settled down in these new empires that they started. Ptolemy controlled Egypt. Seleucus controlled most of Alexander's old Persian territories. And uh, the Antigonids, Demetrius, uh, Antigonus Gennadis, those people uh, ended up founding the dynasty in Macedonia. The Romans ended up taking over that dynasty after the wars with Carthage, after the Second Punic War. The Romans ended up taking over the majority of the Seleucid Empire later. And the final major successor state to fall although the Seleucids continued in some weird form for a little while too, uh, was Egypt, the Ptolemaic Empire, descended from Alexander's boyhood friend Ptolemy, maybe his half-brother, who knows, illegitimate half-brother. The final queen of Ptolemaic Egypt was named Cleopatra. A lot of people think Cleopatra's Egyptian name, but Cleopatra's a Greek name, and the reason it's a Greek name is because she was a Greek descendant from one of Alexander's generals. And Cleopatra of course, who was supposed to have had a relationship with Julius Caesar, also had a relationship with Mark Antony, got herself involved in these Roman civil wars of the very, very, very early empire, ended up backing the wrong side, and when Rome ended up going into Egypt after the defeat at Actium, and Cleopatra committed suicide, supposedly by the bite of an asp, a snake, uh, so ended the... Hellenistic empires, these empires that arose as the result of the breaking up of the empire of Alexander the Great. And I often wonder if, say, the Nazi world empire we talked about earlier had broken up, would somebody like Hermann Goring have tried to be the next Adolf Hitler, or would it have broken up into the various Nazi armies run by the various generals or the officials like, well, Bormann maybe would have one army, and maybe Heinz Guderian has another one. Well, you see what I mean. It's chaotic and it's complicated. And that's a big reason why more people don't know about this fascinating period. But think of what was going on at the time. So here is a, at light speed, breakdown of the events after Alexander the Great died. And this is by no means all of them. And bear in mind that this is just a list of the major events. In 323, Alexander returns to Babylon in the spring. He falls ill after a party and dies on June 11th. Perdiccas assumes control. He partitions the satrapies and doles out governorships to Alexander's generals. A war breaks out in Greece 
After the death of Alexander and the successor general Antipater is besieged in Greece by the rebels. And also in 323, Roxanne gives birth to Alexander IV. In 322, Antipater puts down the revolt in Greece and the successor general Leonidas dies. In 320, Eumenes defeats Craterus and Neoptolemus in May. Perdiccas invades Egypt and then is murdered by his own officers in June. They hold a big conference in July to reapportion the governorships because some of the old governors are dead now. And the successor, General Seleucus, begins his play for power. He enters Babylon in November. In 319, Antigonus defeats Eumenes. In 317, the Athenian Revolution collapses, and Eurydice, probably makes a mistake, of supporting Cassander, who invades Macedonia and secures Roxanne and Alexander IV. Seleucus sees Babylon. In 316, Olympias is kicked out of Macedonia and put under siege. In 315, Eumenes is defeated and executed by Antigonus, and Olympias is executed by Cassander. Cassander then marries one of the female relatives of Alexander. In 313, the falls to Antigonus. Ptolemy in capital in Egypt. Antigonus recaptures his body. In 312, Ptolemy regains Babylon. Cassander executes. Alexander IV and Roxanne in 310. In 309, Alexander's illegitimate son Heracles is executed. Well, you see where I'm going. It just went on like this for a long time. Very hard to understand, but within the context of these events was a lot of drama. And a lot of unusual and bizarre stuff. And if you're into human nature and reading about what people are capable of in certain circumstances, well, these circumstances sure created an interesting backdrop for human nature to reveal itself, let's just say. Now, as far as what connection this whole period has to today, well, that's hard to say. There's no question that Alexander dying as he did when he did, unexpectedly, was one of those turning points in history. A right or a left-hand turn taking you away from where things were heading and setting you on a completely new course. Instead of Alexander continuing to build the largest empire the world had ever seen, he now had some of the most formidable, ambitious men left in the world trying to take it apart. I think if you were going to relate it to modern times, do it this way. This was the first time in recorded world history that Europeans had come in and dominated the area in the Middle East and North Africa as the Macedonians did. As I said, they sort of formed a thin veneer ruling on top of these native cultures. At the same time, other than for short little periods where places like Egypt were taken over by northern barbarians maybe and things like that, this is the first time the West had ever imposed itself on the East and the reason that historians still look upon the Hellenistic period as important is because that wedded and connected East and West in a way that had never happened before. There was always traffic and a mingling of cultures between those two areas, but this was like building a superhighway between them. And so the world became more cosmopolitan, and when Rome ended up taking over these dynasties that had been founded, generations before by Alexander's generals, they became the inheritors of the groundwork that the Macedonian dynasties had laid down for them. So when you look at what's important to take from the Hellenistic period and relate it to today, I would say this. If you were going to graph out human cultural achievement and human development on a chart, and show where man has hit his high watermarks in terms of technology and philosophy and religion and policy and trying to advance the higher callings of man, certainly now would 
be at the top of the list, but there are other times in human history where things got very sophisticated. And the Hellenistic era was one of them. And that sophistication is fascinating to me because that really gives us a window into today, in my opinion. If you compare modern society with, say, ancient Germanic society, they're so different from each other that it's hard to find meaningful parallels. But when you look at, just as an example, Rome's the same way, some of the Chinese empires are the same way, and Hellenistic, the Hellenistic world, you see people in similar circumstances to modern people, people in urban settings who live lives that are in some ways similar to ours, certainly more similar than that German tribesman was living. And that's when you can start to see circumstances that bring out reactions in human nature that have relevancy today. Because remember, the old idea of why history is important and is relevant as a tool is because while the backdrop may change, human nature remains constant. I don't know if you buy that or not, but that's the old theory. Well, if that's the case, the societies in this world that we can learn the most about ourselves as you know, human beings without the cultural backdrop that's specific to us is to look at societies in the ancient world and other time periods that lived in similar situations. And Helen, the Hellenistic world is one of the few that you could really point to and say when you read the literature, for example, or the plays, that these people are people from the past that in a lot of ways we can relate to. And from a comparison viewpoint, that makes all the philosophy and the thinking and the lessons that they learned and they wrote about and they talked about relevant for us today. That's why studying classical literature and stories, for example, is so important because those people were smart and clever and wise and they have lessons to teach us and they learned them playing in, a, in an arena that was just as cutthroat, just as complicated, and just as full of formidable human beings as the arena that our leaders and major figures play in today. Just look at how complicated the wars and funeral games following Alexander's death were. Tell me some of those leaders couldn't play hardball in today's political world. I guess you could call these post-show announcements. Had a couple of things we wanted to tell you about, and we couldn't think of a better way to do it. The first thing is, my producer Ben thought there might be a few masochists out there, among you, who wanted to hear the timeline of very major events that made up Alexander's funeral games. We played it on the show you just heard, but we sped it up to save most of you the pain. But for those of you who like the pain, it's coming up in a few minutes. Stick around for that. As I said, if you like that kind of thing. Also, a couple of announcements. After much deliberation, my producer Ben and I thought we'd tell those of you who didn't already know that we do another show besides this one. The reason we deliberated on it a little bit was because it's a political show. It's about politics and current events. And by its very nature, that's divisive. Politics is divisive. There's no way to 
keep everyone happy with a show like that. So we were afraid. We didn't want to anger any of our hardcore history listeners. So if you don't like that kind of thing, or it's likely to get you upset, don't even check it out. Just stay here, enjoy this show. That's what we want you to do. But for those of you who think you might like something that's a little bit different, and for those of you who'd like me to talk just a little bit faster and louder than I do on this show, please feel free. It's called Common Sense with Dan Carlin, and you can get to it via our website, dancarlin.com. Now, the last thing we wanted to tell you about is that there's a concept we do on that show that I wanted to bring to this show, and that's something Ben and I call the Buck a Show program. And basically, it works out like this. A while back, Ben and I sat down and tried to figure out how we could make a living doing this, podcasting stuff, because it's a full-time job for me, and Ben's got a side gig, but it takes a lot of his time, too. And we like to get sponsors and stuff like that, and we kind of try, but we don't want to hire a whole staff to do that. We don't want to have this giant you know, group of people working to advance the cause. And we came up with the simplest solution we could think of, which is just to ask you to donate whatever you think what you're listening to is worth. We assume it's worth about a dollar. That's the way we look at it. A cup of coffee. And I said to Ben one day in a meeting, do you think the people listening to the show would give us the price of a cup of coffee or buy us a cup of coffee if they saw us? We figured they would. So on the other show, we ask folks for a buck a show. We don't want them to give us the actual dollar right when they think about it. Just sort of let a little ticker go in your head. And when the guilt becomes too much, just send us what you owe us. You don't have to, but if everybody did that, Ben and I could do this forever and maybe get shows out more often. Just a little tease there. In any case, thought we would introduce you to the Buck a Show concept so when you hear it in future history shows, it won't come as a shock. By the way, you can do it through PayPal. You can send us a check. They have a subscription program set up so you can just give us a couple of bucks a month automatically without even thinking about it. Anything would help, and we're very grateful that you're even listening. So if you can't give us any money, we don't care. Glad you're there. And don't check out this, the Common Sense Show unless you have really thick skin. You can find out anything you want to know about the donations or how to do it or where to do it uh, by going to the website at dancarlin.com. And uh, maybe I failed to mention because we haven't really had a post-show segment up till now. But thank you from Ben and me, from the bottom of our hearts, for allowing us to have this little adventure that these podcasts have become. It's strictly because you're listening that this has happened. And thanks for helping us spread the word. So here, without further ado, for the masochists among you, the timeline of very major events in the Alexander Funeral Game Mafia Soap Opera story. And thanks again, everyone. In 323, Alexander returns to Babylon in the spring. He falls ill after a party and dies on June 11th. Perdiccas assumes control. He partitions the satrapies and doles out governorships to Alexander's generals. A war breaks out in Greece after the death of Alexander, and the successor general Antipater is besieged in Greece by the rebels. And also in 323, Roxanne gives birth to Alexander IV. In 322, Antipater puts down the revolt in Greece, and the successor general Leonatus dies. The Athenian fleet is defeated off Amorgos. Battle of Cranon in August. A Macedonian garrison is imposed on Athens. The deaths of Aristotle, Demosthenes, and Hyperides, all related to the funeral games. Ptolemy hijacks Alexander's funeral cortege and takes the body to Memphis in 321. Also in 321, Eurydice marries Philip Eridaeus, and Antigonus One-Eye and Antipater start a coalition against Perdiccas. In 320, Eumenes defeats Craterus and Neoptolemus in May. Perdiccas invades Egypt and then is murdered by his own officers in June. They hold a big conference in July to reapportion the governorships because some of the old governors are dead now. And the 
successor General Seleucus begins his play for power. He enters Babylon in November. In 319, Antigonus defeats Eumenes and besieges him in the city of Nora in the spring. Ptolemy annexes Syria and Palestine. Antipater dies. Polyperchon becomes the regent. In 318, there's a democratic revolution in Athens. Eumenes is released by Antigonus and immediately joins Polyperchon and the Regency. In 317, the Athenian Revolution collapses, and Eurydice probably makes the mistake of supporting Cassander, who invades Macedonia and secures Roxanne and Alexander IV. Philip Aridaeus is also murdered by Olympias, and Eurydice commits suicide in 317. In 316, Olympias is kicked out of Macedonia and put under siege. In 315, Eumenes is defeated and executed by Antigonus, and Olympias is executed by Cassander. Cassander then marries one of the female relatives of Alexander named Thessaloniki. Uh, Seleucus flees Babylon in fright because of Antigonus, and he joins Ptolemy in Egypt. In 315, a coalition of governors against Antigonus is created. Antigonus marches on Syria, rejects the demands of the coalition of successor generals, and begins a war. 313, Tyre falls to Antigonus. Ptolemy moves his capital in Egypt, and he moves Alexander's body from Memphis to Alexandria. In 312, Seleucus regains Babylonia, Susania, Med and Medea. Ptolemy defeats Demetrius the besieger at Gaza. Antigonus recaptures parts of Syria. Ptolemy withdraws. Cassander executes Alexander IV and Roxanne in 310. In 309, Alexander's illegitimate son Heracles is executed. <laughs> Don't forget to vote for Hardcore History on PodcastAlley.com.